Protests in China. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. In a dozen cities across China, at least a dozen cities, demonstrations continue to erupt with tens of thousands of people seeming to take to the streets to protest what seems to be their opposition to COVID lockdown policies. But in any case, by some accounts, these demonstrations are the largest since the 1989 protests in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. Those protests were ended with a bloody and brutal crackdown by the Chinese military. Here to talk about what's going on now in China is Jake Werner. He's a research fellow at the Quincy Institute. He's also an expert on all things China. Jake, first of all, thanks for joining us. How do you, how do you explain these demonstrations and what's driving them? Uh, there's just a range of grievances here. You know, anytime you get a big protest wave like this, it's it's going to be drawing on grievances that that are broad. Um, the thing that has made grievances particularly broad in China over the last couple of years is the extremely strict COVID restrictions, where China has uh, tried very hard to eliminate any and all infections, and that requires people to uh, to quarantine in their apartments or in quarantine centers. Um, for two weeks if they are infected or if they are exposed to someone who's been infected. And the, uh, the very intense Chinese surveillance system makes sure that a lot of people get, uh, get caught up in that. Uh, those who are a little bit reluctant to quarantine in this way, they are forcibly confined to their home, sometimes even have their front doors bolted shut. Um, and that kind of feeds into what set off this protest. Um, uh, people are uh, people have been watching the effects that this has had on on other Chinese people around the country. Uh, recently, there was a fire in a, in, a, in the western uh, provincial city of Urumqi. Uh, the fire killed ten people, and it seems clear that some obstacles that were in the way of firefighters getting to the emergency uh, is what contributed to very a very low response and probably increased the number of deaths. Um, that uh, people found out about that, and they said, "This could have been me." You know, like the fire door in my apartment is locked too, um, and and then that sort of just resonates with the entire uh, frustration about uh, these these increasingly broad lockdowns, increasingly broad because the the infection rate has been going up, um, and it's been affecting more and more people. So people's livelihoods are affected. Um, millions of people are are locked in their apartments. Uh, it, it just set off a general frustration around the COVID restrictions, uh, but there's also a political element. We can we can talk a bit more about that if you like. Well, those images of of the fire and people essentially being locked into their apartments and realizing that some people, you know, maybe it may cost them their lives because they're essentially jammed into the apartment and can't leave has been so sort of horrific and certainly seems to have inspired a lot of people and a lot of people in the West and the United States in particular have been watching this. What do you make of the Biden administration response? What should the response be in terms of the U.S. relationship with China? Well, thus far, the, the Biden administration has been fairly cautious. They've said um, they're skeptical that the zero COVID policy is workable. Uh, they've said that uh, people have the right to protest. They support people's right to protest, but they haven't really gone beyond that. They haven't uh, sort of uh, strongly embraced the protesters or said that China should uh, democratize immediately, something like that. Um, I think that is actually quite wise under the circumstances. Uh, the The issue is that the administration and the US in general is in kind of a fix right now. The relationship with China has deteriorated really sharply over the last five years. And uh, both the Trump and the Biden administrations have uh, taken increasingly antagonistic uh, policies towards uh, China, both in security realms and in the economy. And increasingly, that has damaged the reputation of the United States in China 
in, in the population as a whole. And so if the United States were seen to be embracing these protesters, the danger is that it would discredit them amongst, uh, amongst many people in China who think that the motivations the United States has in its China policy are, are very suspect. And would certainly also perhaps undermine whatever is left of the relationship with the Chinese government, which might see the United States as trying to somehow meddle in their internal affairs. But on the other hand, the United States, I suppose, has some sort of moral obligation. So is it pretty much like walking a tightrope here? They can't go too far in criticizing what's happening in China. But it's also the case, I suppose, that the United States can't be silent. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the, the tack that the Biden administration has taken is 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 quite it manages to walk that that line. Right, they say we support the right of people in China and everywhere to protest. And in, in fact, the Chinese constitution itself uh, enshrines the right to protest. So, uh, so this should not be controversial. This should not be something that's interfering in, in the internal affairs of China to, to simply say, you know, people everywhere have the right to protest. Um, uh, uh, but going further than that and, and giving, giving the sense that, um, that the United States supports some kind of regime change, or or could be covertly supporting the protesters, or something like that. That that would be quite quite dangerous, um, both both for American interests and for I think for the the interests of people in China. What do all of these protests in China mean for the regime of Xi Jinping? <sighs> Good question. <laughs> it's it's maybe too soon to say because we don't know. Uh, how big the protests will get if they'll kind of peter out. They've they've been fairly quiet the last few days, um, or if they if they swell back up and 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 uh, and the Chinese government fails to address some of the discontent that's out there. Uh, that's also a possibility. Um, so it, we'll have to see the course the protests take. But uh, one thing that I think is certain is that this is the uh, the most uh, uh, sort of direct challenge to the leadership of Xi Jinping. That he has seen inside his own country. For the last ten years, Xi Jinping has been closing off the political. There, there, there used to be some political space in China for for protesting, for dissent, for criticizing the government. That increasingly has been closed off, and the the recent 20th Party Congress affirmed a third term for Xi Jinping. So, you know, people in China and outside of China looked at that and said. Okay, that's uh, that's what we can expect more of this, um, and I think that is also something that's behind the protests is the sense that you know we, we have lost the ability to be critical of the government and we want that back, um, and so that's another one of these underlying grievances that that the government needs to respond to. The question is, will they respond uh, with more repression or or will they they open up to a certain extent? Well, and that gets to something I mentioned at the top of the show, the 1989 protests in Tiananmen Square in Beijing when Chinese tanks rolled in and crushed, um, killed, literally killed thousands of people. Uh, what are the options for the Chinese government now? I mean, is there a danger that if there is a very strong military effort to, uh, to eliminate this, that the backlash increases? I mean, is there a balancing act as well for the Chinese government here? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've seen this. That this sort of general type of protest, spontaneous, not organized, not not part of organized politics, but a spontaneous popular protest of what's going on in a country, uh, criticizing unaccountable elites. This is something we've seen around the world uh, over the last uh, several years, um, all the way back to the Arab Spring. So, in some ways, this is something very similar. Um, and uh, almost without fail, if the government comes in with a heavy hand, that causes the protest to swell. People get more outraged and more people come into the streets in support of those who were attacked. Um, 
the thus far the Chinese government has not done something like that. Um, the the kind of recent history of the way the Chinese government has dealt with uh, with protests is uh, generally to uh, to uh, hit hard against what the people they take to be leading the protests, but to offer concessions and. Uh, not bring any major consequences for the vast majority of people who engage in the protests. Um, so, like as I said, some of the some of that space uh, has closed under Xi Jinping. The uh, we've seen greater repression of activism under Xi Jinping. Um, so we we can't tell for sure what direction it's going to go. But that would be uh, a model that the party could pursue that that would not involve major violence against the protesters. Um, but a lot a lot really depends on the protesters as well, what what their demands are, uh, how big they get, um, and how long this goes on for. As far as the direction of COVID in China, a lot of people here in the United States may not quite understand. I mean, China really, I mean, it sealed, sealed cities off. Um, and as a result, I suppose it tamped down the spread of COVID. But is that possible to sort of keep it contained now? And what happens if it spreads across China? Yes, China has been extremely successful. It, it has saved many, many lives. The, the total number of deaths in China is in is in the thousands, not in the hundreds of thousands, and that is remarkable for a country the size of China. Comparing it to a place like India, compared to a place like the United States, much lower infection rates, much lower death rates. The problem now is that the Omicron variant is starting to get out of control. It's far, far more transmissible. The it seems quite clear now that the zero COVID strategy. Uh, will have to become increasingly, increasingly restrictive. We'll, we'll start to choke off the economy and, and increase the popular unrest around the policies. Um, that does not seem tenable. The the government does sort of look like it's trying to ease into a, a, a less restrictive approach to COVID. But if the infection rate shoots up and we get tens of millions of people being hospitalized, and and there are the the estimates that are out there show that. We, if if the government were to re, were to raise restrictions immediately, um, there would be a wave of infection. Uh, millions upon millions of people would be um, would be hospitalized and, and sent to ICUs, and we could expect probably something like six hundred thousand deaths coming out of that wave of infections. So that also would be a huge huge challenge to the to the power and legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so this is a very difficult line that the government's walking right now. And China's infrastructure in terms of dealing with something of that magnitude, um, in terms of their healthcare system, uh, hospitals, is it is it ready for it? No, it's not ready. Um, this would completely overwhelm the Chinese healthcare system, uh, which which remains quite weak despite the, the claims to being a socialist country. Um, the, the number of ICU beds in China is, uh, is only about four per 100,000, which is oh. about one fourth the level in the United States and, and smaller than, than many other uh, countries in in Europe, um, so the 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 Chinese system just does not have the capacity to deal with a massive um, uh, wave of infections. We we would see it overwhelmed in the same way that we saw, um, you know, systems uh, like New York system overwhelmed when when COVID first hit uh, the United States. Jake Warner is a research fellow at the Quincy Institute. Uh, his work has examined uh, U.S. Chinese policies relationship. Jake, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Yes, thank. You. Wonderful to be on. You got it. Welcome back to the conversation. If you are a consumer of even say a modest variety of news sources, you probably know by now that during Thanksgiving week, Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago dined with Nick Fuentes, a white nationalist who is a Holocaust denier and his friend Kanye West, the rapper who has trafficked in hate. A number of Republicans have described this as an effing 
PR nightmare, not just for MAGA world, but also for the Republican Party. But if you rely solely on Fox News, this is probably news to you. In fact, according to Media Matters, Fox News, since this happened, has spent a total, a total amount of time covering the story of seven minutes. Seven minutes. Joining us is Craig Harrington. He's the research director for Media Matters. And Craig, I know you guys watch Fox News, so the rest of us don't have to, but was this perhaps even surprising for all of you who track them? It wasn't necessarily surprising. Um, and first of all, thank you for having me, uh, having me, David. Um, it wasn't necessarily surprising for those of us who watch Fox News full time. You know, we we somewhat expected that they would find every opportunity to bury this story and attempt to move on. Um, but you can't deny how stark the lack of coverage was. Um, and seven minutes is actually being generous. We round up um, for the sake of simplicity, but. If you go back and watch, it's only about six minutes and 40 seconds, which as you know, is um, is one long cable news segment. Um, and actually when we did some comparisons between Fox and their competitors, legitimate news organizations like CNN and MSNBC, we found very easily um, on Monday morning, uh, individual segments on CNN's morning show and on MSNBC's morning show that were roughly equal to, or actually in the case of CNN's, double the length. Of coverage that that Fox gave this story. Um, on Fox, this was just a couple of headline news segments, a couple of mentions so that they could claim that they didn't ignore it entirely. Um, but when you look at the breadth of a 24 hour news, uh, news organization like Fox, they could have dug into this as much as they wanted to. Anyone who has seen Fox go wall to wall with coverage on on their pseudo scandals or their manufactured crises knows what Fox can do when they want to highlight something. This was a very, very deliberate effort. Uh, and and it seems like the, the the most that it got highlighted were people who were not even on air, you know, talent of Fox News, but were invited on, whether it's Fox News Sunday or some other show, and and happened to mention it. What's so surprising to me about all this is that Fox News, the Murdoch Empire, have come out. It seems like sort of against Donald Trump, saying it's time for the party to move on. So, what does Fox News gain from a strategic perspective of trying to bury the story and trying to keep Donald Trump's hands clean when it comes to anti-Semitism and white nationalism and far right stuff? Well, in this case, <clears throat> excuse me. In this case, Fox is implicated just as badly as Donald Trump is. It's almost impossible for Fox News, which hosts Tucker Carlson in its most prominent. Um, primetime news segment, um, Tucker Carlson's hour-long primetime program. It's almost impossible for Fox News to be taken seriously when they say anything um, regarding anti-Semitism when they promote what is essentially the white power hour hosted by Tucker Carlson. Um, all of the tropes that Nick Fuentes and Ye have promoted on uh, on social media, the sorts of commentary that have gotten them banned or deplatformed um, is largely just the, just passed off as commentary from Tucker Carlson on a pretty routine basis um, with you know the sharpest corners sanded down. Nick Fuentes is willing to um, willing to use racial slurs that would never make it onto air on Fox. And he's willing to willing to say overtly what would only ever be dog whistles or just asking questions um, from Fox News's primetime lineup. But um, they're just as implicated in this as Trump is. Um, and that's also the same reason that you see the GOP, you know, saying Vaguely, that they um, they oppose anti-Semitism and putting out condemnations of Ye or of Fuentes individually, but never mentioning Trump. Um, if they ever brought up the fact that it was problematic that Trump had this relationship with anti-Semites, it would immediately reflect on their problematic relationship with the same people and with Trump himself. Full disclosure: I was a correspondent for. I left, and that was more than 20 years ago. But back then, and when I was in Washington, and I'm so curious, Craig, to hear your sort of perspective on this. When I was in DC, Fox tried to 
sort of make a distinction between its news programming led by Brit Hume or say Brett Baer and its opinion programming, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly. And it seems like they're still trying to do the same saying, oh no, well, Brett Baer is a newsman, he doesn't traffic in this. And yet, there was that book that came out that found that Brett Baer had actually pushed his political decision desk in 2020 to take back their call of Arizona for Joe Biden. So in terms of sort of the zeitgeist of Washington, is Fox still somehow able to get away with making this argument about a distinction between Brett Baer and Tucker Carlson, or is that just sort of laughed at now? There's there's some occasion where serious journalists and 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 commentators who who treat themselves with some degree of respect will actually sort of play along with the with the news moniker in Fox News's name. But one of the things that we have seen over the past decade is a fairly successful effort from Media Matters and from other organizations and from legitimate news outlets who don't want to be um, don't want to see themselves included into the cohort with Fox News, um, recognizing that it is not um, a legitimate news operation. Um, you may occasionally hear people comment that there are journalists who work at Fox and there are people who do um, legitimate or, or objective analysis, but it really just has to do with longevity. The longer you stay at Fox, the more partisan um, your commentary naturally becomes. And that is even true of people who who headline the supposed straight news programs, say Brett Baer or John Roberts or Britt Hume, who you mentioned. Britt Hume is now widely considered to be one of their most partisan senior political analysts. And he started off as someone who was regularly trotted out as as being objective and analytical. And now he's purely partisan in his commentary and very predictable in his perspective on on news and notes. Britt Hume, like you said, had pressured the decision desk at Fox News to re, to rescind their Arizona call in 2020. He also has allowed his commentary to be imbued with right wing talking points um, Brett, Brett in, in many instances. I think you meant Brett Bear. I think you said Brett Hume, but in any Sorry, case, yeah. But but all the you know, look, um, one of the things that um, that uh, it's sort of struck me in the wake of you know Donald Trump and trafficking and anti-Semitism and, and white nationalism. is I think the FBI director testified recently in Washington and said that um, the number of sort of a hateful acts, violence and threats uh, against you know Jewish institutions is up something like 60% or comprises something like 60% of all the threats, even though the Jewish community comprises I think only you know 2.6%. So it feels like there is a relationship, there is almost a causal relationship between okay, Fox News sort of washes its hands of it or doesn't condemn this stuff. And it almost feels like with a wink and a nod, it, it says to the crazy people, to the racists in our midst, oh yeah, it's, it's okay for them to, to engage in violence. And, and in a way, it makes me think that in some ways Fox News is responsible. You know, it, it does seem as if you can point to a media permission structure, um, particularly when you think about the, the way that Fox News is used as a validator for so many far right talking points where they where they uphold or um, or amplify individual far right um, motivations or individuals or provocateurs or instigators. Um, they may not um, they may not officially condone all of that individual behavior, or they may not condone everything that an individual or organization um, uh, adheres to and promotes. But by amplifying these things, they create a permission structure and they and they inject these conversations into into the bloodstream. The anti-Semitism that we see routinely from Fox News and the anti-Semitism that we see routinely from the individuals that Fox News chooses to amplify and promote, um, it's getting out there and it's becoming more mainstream, particularly within the Republican base. And so it shouldn't be as seen as a surprise um, that we might see hate crimes or uh, uses of slurs um, on the rise. Whenever you create a permission structure, you're going to see 
provocateurs rushed to fill that void. This is something we saw with Twitter as well when Elon Musk completed his um, his his corporate takeover of that social media platform. We saw a very brief but enormous spike in the use of slurs and other hate other forms of um, of identifiable hate speech on that platform. Why? It wasn't as if a new rush of users had joined. It was users who were already on the platform now sort of testing the fences. And even if they did it only briefly, even if it was eventually rescinded, creating the opportunity gave the gave the impetus and the motivation for individuals to act out. I know that Media Matters through the years has tried to you know reach out to Fox News to get to some response, and usually there's there's no response. But in this particular case, where it's been pointed out by Media Matters, and I suppose maybe even other journalists have picked up and said, "Hey, Fox News, what's going on here? You've only given maybe seven minutes to this story." Has there been any response, any reaction from Fox News to to when this is brought up and and people talk about it? They haven't responded to this individual story or the or the aspects of it, um, as is pretty typical for that organization. Um, they don't think of criticism of their reporting as valid, and generally they they try to avoid uh, really any recognition of it unless it unless it comes with a with an attached legal threat. Um, but what we have seen is some of the commentary that Fox News is providing in the days since our our study of their coverage or lack of coverage of the Fuentes incident, um, their commentary on it has begun to shift a little bit. Initially, it was to bury it, um, hide it in a, in a news alert, you know, give it 21 seconds of airtime and move on. And now their commentary has shifted a bit where they're having some of their on-air talent address the scandal directly and, and acknowledge that it is important, but then demand that we can pivot toward other things that they say as more important. Just yesterday during their, during their, um, their midday program um, outnumbered, Lisa Kennedy Montgomery, who's one of their one of their um, one of their uh, professional propagandists, she was on there and she was saying, you know, in response to the Fuentes story, obviously this this is something that is all over the news, but it's really a mainstream media story. It's not relevant to the people, and what really matters, and what I wish the media would cover, is the situation at the southern border. And she was actually trying to pivot away from a conversation about a scandal involving white supremacists and Trump. And pivot toward talking points that are openly white supremacist, which actually emanate from Trump. And she was doing it without any degree of irony, because that's what they want to talk about now. Yeah, it's just a shameful and shame. they have no shame, basically. Uh, the, the, the idea that they would say this stuff straight is remarkable. One quick question, finally, uh, Fox News likes to say, oh, well, we're not OAN, we're not Newsmax. You guys are watching all of this. Are they moving towards those really far right channels or are they sort of staying in their lane? I mean, Fox has more or less absorbed a much of the far right um, ecosystem that previously was available for Newsmax and OAN. You'll remember, and this is something that you mentioned earlier, when when Fox News did make the call for Arizona, a lot of their viewers moved en masse to OAN and Newsmax, and Fox responded in kind by unleashing their primetime lineup to go even further right and bring those people back into the fold. And they've largely been successful, and that was over two years ago. Yeah, and there was Brett Baer uh, right after the election saying, well, maybe we should take it back. And he's their Fox yeah. News guy. Remarkable stuff. Craig Harrington, Research Director of Media Matters. Craig, always great having you on the program. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for your time. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, Craig Lowry, and Bart Kyle, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.